Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This is a podcast from The Bugle. Welcome to Tiny Revolutions with me, Tiff Stevenson, where we talk to comedians, performers, activists and various people about their tiny revolutions, the art and political movements that have made a difference to them. I'm joined today by the fantastic W. Kamau Bell and Nato Green, all the way from the United States, and I'm going to applaud them on. Yay. The sound of one person clapping. <laughs> that's about how I did at the Edinburgh Festival, so that's, that works. Hi guys, welcome to the show. I'm going to start at the start. Basically, everyone I've invited onto this show is a tiny revolution to me. So, you know, I'm aware of both of your work. We've done festivals together. I love your stuff and I want to talk about you working together. But before we get into that, I'd like to know, let's start at the beginning. How did you become comedians, specifically political comedians? Was this by design or happy accident? I became a co- political comedian at about the same time that I became a comedian. Uh, because when I was a kid, my grandfather every week would clip out political cartoons from the newspaper and mail them to me from his house in Chicago. And then we would get on the phone every week and discuss the political cartoons. So from an early age, I have no memory of being aware of politics without being aware of joking about politics. and. Uh, that started when I was in, probably in sixth grade. So when I started doing stand-up, it, which is now 16 years ago, I had the good fortune of, like, I, you know, started doing comedy and did what everybody did and wrote jokes about dicks and whatever. And then, uh, like, uh, you know, a month into me doing stand-up, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, and I was very upset about it and uh, about how that disaster was unfolding in the Bush administration response and then like wrote about that. And that was the first time I got laughs and I was like, Oh, this is, this is what I do. Uh, and it's not, I like, I became a political comedian because I'm a political person. In addition to being a comedian, I've been a union organizer for over 20 years. And so, and like involved. So being sort of have been connected to the left and activists in different social movements and being involved in organizing myself, sort of like, I feel like I'm someone who comments on politics as a comedian, as a participant rather than as an, as an observer. So life made you political by the sounds of it in your comedy. If it's Hurricane Katrina, a big event that comes along and says, I can't not talk about this because this affects all of us. The system created me, man. <laughs> okay, uh, Kamal, what about you? I mean, <laughs> so as I've joked about a lot, I grew up in one of those households where every month was Black History Month. Uh, <laughs> so as a Afro-American, <laughs> after it was the 70s. So 
you know, there were always conversations in my house about race. At the time, I didn't know that stuff was political, so it was just the way that my mom talked. You know, as my as my favorite joke from my young era of stand up comedy was, I was eight years old before I realized that a cracker was also a delicious snack. <laughs> uh, Salty. So, <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah. So, uh, I, they, the, I was always in my life, but I wanted to be a comedian because of Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live. There was just there was nothing about it that was like in the tradition of Dick Gregory. There was nothing about that in my in what I wanted to do, and. Uh, but then after becoming a comedian, after failing for a long time, after struggling to find my voice, uh, a man ra- ran for president named Barack Hussein Obama, and I became very interested in him because I grew up in a house talking about racism. And then at some point, I started getting booked on political comedy shows because <laughs> I was talking about the black the black guy running for president. And it's around that time that me and I think I think NATO sort of identified me as a political comedian. It's like, come do these shows with me. They're better political comedy shows than the ones you're currently getting booked on. So... Yeah, it was definitely an evolution. So, again, it seems like an external thing sort of pushed you forward in that direction as opposed to you deciding you're a political comedian. The world told you, hey, you're a political comedian. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to do this. And then people said that's political comedy. But then the thing that happened was, as I was saying earlier, I would get booked on political comedy shows. And this happened in NATO, too. And they'd be like, that's not what we mean by political comedy. (laughs) So... Right. Okay. You're talking about you're talking about racism too much. Right. So I saw this early in your the the show that you did together, and we will come back to it in the work section. But on laughter against the machine, yourself and NATO are having a conversation about the fact that a lot of uh, what's deemed political comedy in America is where or you they want liberal comedians to turn up and reaffirm their opinions mm-hmm. rather than actually joke about you know, all of the stuff around it. Yeah. So the liberal audiences expect their opinions to be reinforced. Have I got that correct? You have got that correct. I mean, even with Joe Biden being president right now, and I'm sure NATO's running into this, if you if you criticize Joe Biden, you're like, hey, he just started. Give him a chance. Like, <laughs> I can't make jokes? Like, when does the jokes t- time of start with Joe Biden? You know, when, when Kamau and I started doing political comedy shows together was when you know, sort of towards the end of the George George Bush administration. And there was like, prior to that point, you know, I think now we don't, people don't remember what political comedy was like at that point, but it was like very much like a sort of twee kind of white guy vibe. There were these things that were like on, you know, on public television and it felt like you would sort of, you know, it was quippy and, uh, and clever and, that 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 there it felt like there was a disconnect between what people understand as political comedy and what we were interested in which was the comedy of social criticism that encompassed racism and you know other types of oppression that people who were activists would identify with and so um you know we really wanted to push the idea of that 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 political comedy should indict all of us because the whole system is f-ed up like recently you know, the Facebook memories reminded me that the day that Obama was elected president, I got a call from a reporter for the local newspaper, the big daily in San Francisco, saying, you know, how are you going to make jokes about politics anymore now that Obama's president? And I like day one of Obama being president, I was like, yeah, but still this country. I'm not finished. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's what brilliant comedy is. And that's the thing that both of you do. You should be hitting social 
sort of, you know, socio, personal, economic, political, that they all kind of, you know, because the personal is political as well in lots of ways. And Kamal, did you come through San Francisco as well then? Was that obviously where the two of you met doing comedy? Yeah, I moved to San Francisco uh, from Chicago. I'd started doing comedy in Chicago. And at some point, it was like being in school. I realized I I, I repeated the same year three times my first three years (laughs) of comedy. And so I knew San Francisco had a great reputation and I moved there and, you know, still sort of like noodled along. And then by the time I met NATO, I was just starting to be like, you know, I'm 10 years in. I think I finally maybe have figured out stand-up comedy. So, yeah, that was what happened. And both of you coming through San Francisco as a scene, you were kind of talking about, I think, again, in an episode of Laughter Against the Machine, that you were sort of bringing this kind of hipster politics from San Francisco, um, sometimes preaching to the converted. It's interesting that you're both so political because San Francisco is in lots of ways this kind of idyllic, very right on place, but also the inequality is so vast. I mean, possibly more so than anywhere else I've been in America that I can really see the divide in terms of um, wealth and poverty. And I wanted to ask class because class is such a huge thing in the UK. Does it play out the same way in America? Like, firstly, would you, how would you define yourself in terms of class? Or does it even exist in the same way? Yeah, I mean, I think that, <laughs> I don't, I mean, Nato, you can speak to this. You work, you work, you're a union organizer. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think we think about it the same way that people think about it in the UK. Because we have this racism thing that gets us all hung up. So we certainly, there is talk of class, but not in a sense of like, the identify your station, I don't think. I think there's really like, one percenters and everybody else. I think it's how we sort of think about it. But what do you think, Neil? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, I think you're right. Like the that the UK has a has an awareness about class that people don't like. Like in the US, people assume think that class is the same as as income, and that um, you know that, that sort of have a hard time recognizing that like it's that it's it's more than just what's in your checkbook. That you know there are some circumstances where like no matter how much money you make, you're not going to get let in the right clubs, um, and so you know it. And but and Kamau's right. Like in class and race are in constant communion in the United States. Um, so you know, I mean, partly to like answer answer your question, I am like your textbook like middle class Jewish intellectual. You know what I mean? Like like <laughs> like like I I'm the first person. It, like in my family in four generations not to go to graduate school. Right. You know, because capitalism is failing and we're all downwardly mobile now Um, (laughs) and there's no future. So it's just that, you know, and when I became a union organizer, my grandmother was like, can't you be a labor lawyer or a labor historian or, you know, something more prestigious than the guy (laughs) like literally holding the picket signs? Um, (laughs) You know, and you're right. Like San Francisco has this, both has this sort of, like somewhat, you know, historically, you know, hip, sort of like tolerant culture, but with both inequality and also racism, we have some, you know, as as Kamau has talked about, uh, uh, it, you know, in his shows, like San, Fran- San Francisco has some pretty special kinds of racism. Um, if you're if you're t- tasting racism from around the world, <laughs> and the the economic inequality, like there was some like World Bank study that San Francisco has a level of economic inequality that is somewhere between Guatemala and Rwanda. Wow. It's a stat to be proud of. <laughs> that's a, that's, yeah, that's a, um, 
that's a big big divide or a big poverty gap is that what they call it which does sound like you know a year out to go and work in the shop yeah, right. uh, for a lot, of, a lot of people in the in the UK, it's much more linked, to, I guess, to school and opportunity. And America has, I guess, a, a slightly more um, broader idea that anyone from anywhere could become president, and sometimes does. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, that that uh, where you went to school shouldn't be as important. In the UK, class is very much linked to, like you say, the clubs you can get into, the schools you could go to who you know, who might be giving you those opportunities as well as wealth and generationally, uh, you know, what your family did. So what about you, Kamal? Yeah, I would say here, all of that is linked to race. <laughs> like right. All of that is like that, that all of that is like what clubs you can get into, what what schools you can get into, what what level of society you can get into, what level of corporate America you can get into is way more linked to race than linked to class. Like, I mean, or linked to some sort of idea of like, well, you were born, if you're born a poor white person, you can earn yourself into it and you somehow hit some sort of tranche of money. You can get into, you can then get into all those places, all the right places once the money. But as a black person, you, there's been, you know, any number of rich black people tell you like, I went here and found out that my money was no good <laughs> and not in a good way, you know? So and I say that as somebody who, you know, I definitely earn more money than NATO Green. I am definitely <laughs> more wealthy than NATO Green. Uh, I've, I've never said it out loud. It feels good. But I could still walk outside of this hotel right now and get killed by a cop just because I'm a black guy in America. Right. I should switch those punchlines up. That, that in part's not as funny. <laughs> it's our two-person reparations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One other thing I was going to say about class is that is that the the U.S. class system is not especially like there's not that much mobility. There's just enough mobility to maintain the illusion of mobility. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. they okay. let just a few people through, and it's always contingent. So like. For me, you know, a lot of the those those the clubs and the access to the circles of, you know, elite power. As a Jew, I don't have, have access to because Jews aren't like don't count as white people unless unless we go full fucking Jared Kushner and completely mm-hmm. embrace white supremacy, <laughs> and then we get let in. Yeah, but how could you live with yourself, NATO? Right. <laughs> and then you have to be that guy. Following on from that, what are your earliest? political memories because I know both of you are saying you sort of had conversations in the house like one of my uh, I, I will share with you my my earliest sort of memory of anything happening politically in terms of a movement was with Margaret Thatcher and milk um, so basically I went into school and we used to have milk every day at break time and then she took it away so it was there one day, then it was gone, and she was called Thatcher Thatcher Milk Snatcher. That was like the refrain. My mum was very anti Margaret Thatcher. Um, my my parents vote differently; they're on the opposite sides of you know uh, politically. But that being my first, mo- and I didn't know at the time it was political. I just knew that there was a thing, and then there wasn't a thing. So, what's your sort of earliest memories of that political moments? I mean, I remember growing up knowing that I wasn't supposed to like Ronald Reagan, and I really don't know that I knew exactly why, but I remember very viscerally knowing, like, we don't like that guy. <laughs> like, we don't, like that. We, we don't f*** with him. Like, I remember very viscerally. And then I remember, I mean, the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. So I think really knowing that the president was not somebody who was your friend necessarily was a thing that I know I knew very early on, that that, that, that was a thing that could exist. Um, so, yeah, I think that even though... 
and I'll say this, even though I, there were other things that I would now look back on as political conversations, but they were tied to race, and at that point I didn't understand them to be political. And I don't even know that the people who I heard them from understood them to be political. Hmm. That's interesting. That's really interesting. What about you, NATO? So uh, my parents were active like in the left, and so I grew up going to like anti-nuclear rallies and U.S. out of El Salvador rallies and things like that. The, the earliest memory that I can pin a date to is the assassination of Harvey Milk. Um, so for, for the international listeners, Harvey Milk was a, a, a elected member of the San Francisco city government, and he was the first out gay um, uh, politician elected to public office in the United States. Uh, and he was elected in 77, I think, and he was assassinated in 78 by a former colleague. And there were there were riots in San Francisco. Um, and so that's that, that's sort of my earliest memory of that there was a civil rights, a gay civil rights leader who was murdered and people took to the streets over it. And my parents were really upset. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. What were the kind of films, TV shows and stuff like that that were influencing sort of what's now become your comedic oeuvre for both of you? What were your sort of early influences? I mean, for me, like, I, I always say I was a comedy nerd before that was a thing that we knew existed. Like, I was, I'm, I'm at the age where, like, I, I remember seeing, like, stand-up comedy go from this thing that was only on albums to this thing that was, like, everywhere and, and basic cable and every every late-night talk show had a stand-up comic. And, you know, I remember seeing Jerry Seinfeld on his first, on, like, I don't know if his first, but on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson Eddie Murphy. I remember seeing Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live go from that black guy in the back who didn't get a lot of lines to like hosting the show while he was on the show and really feeling invested in his success. Uh, it is quite depressing for me to think that I've had a long career in comedy and did not end up in the sequel to Coming to America. <laughs> oh, I just watched it the other day. Yes, it's, I haven't watched it yet. It's too painful. Um, I just, I just would. If you told me I had it, yeah, you're going to be a stand-up comic when you grow up, and then the sequel to Coming to America is going to come out, I'd be like, oh well, I'll totally be in it. No, there's, there was no, there was no. I didn't. You could be, you could be in the third one. <laughs> the third one <laughs> that the, he's the, not in. The all Jermaine Fowler one. <laughs> yeah, the, the, exactly the one that Eddie's not in anymore. I'll be in that one. Coming to America. Three Tokyo Drift or something, whatever yeah, coming, it'll be. Coming three America. <laughs> so yeah, so I was just a a fan of comedy, like a fan of like Saturday Night Live and and everything. As a fan, uh, uh, you know, at the at the time that all every other black kid in America was talking about hip hop, I was talking about the Young Comedian Special on HBO. <laughs> like I right. was, that was just that was that was my thing. But you saw yourself represented then um, 
is because there's a beautiful bit in your special that's on Netflix where you talk about your daughter watching a TV show about doctors. Mm -hmm. And it's really, I don't want to repeat the bit because I'll do it a disservice, but it's a really beautiful bit about representation, really. And her kind of having a moment of going, black women are doctors. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see and that's what I expect. So did you feel like you were kind of represented by seeing Eddie Murphy on screen? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think when I think about seeing Eddie Murphy on SNL, I mean, I was, I don't know, I was eight. I don't know. But I felt like he was also, he was like 19. And I felt like, oh, we're basically the same age. You know what I mean? Like, Because like <laughs> he was so much younger than everybody else in that cast. And also just looked like a regular black dude at that point. He does not look like a regular black dude anymore. But um, I think that my mom always said that when she was coming up, she would go to anything a black person was in just because you were like excited to see a black person on screen, whether it was TV or movies. Whereas my generation, that wasn't really possible in the same way anymore. Where, but therefore, it meant like you could, I could see versions of myself in show business. So it was something I could imagine, and way more than I could imagine being a doctor. Right, and NATO for you, there's hardly any Jewish comedians, so I, I imagine know. that must have been <laughs> that must have been tough. When are we going to catch a break, the Jewish guys? <laughs> um, you know, I was also a comedy nerd before that was a thing, and like, I mean, I remember. There was a time I was able to go to the video store and rent every single stand-up comedy video that they had at the video store and watch all of them. That that was a thing that was possible to do. You could go to Blockbuster Video, just work your way through the stand-up special section. And now you won't even watch your, like, your friend's comedy specials, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, people... Yeah. <laughs> I watched your special, man. Uh, I'm not talking about me. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, it gets to the point where your friend goes, my new special's out, and you're like, I'll tweet about it, but I don't know if I'm going to sit through it. Yeah. Yeah, your friends put out a special, and you're like, I know what the f*** you have to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, in terms of comedy, like, you know, also growing up in the Bay Area, I mean, I have a very vivid memory of, you know, Robin Williams really spoke to me, and when Robin Williams hosted Saturday Night Live, there was one when it was Robin Williams and Paul Simon uh, when Graceland came out uh, and like watch staying up to watch that that um, Saturday Night Live you know there was a point I mean actually speaking of uh, Jewish comics in in I want to say 88 or 89 Jackie Mason had this Carnegie Hall special that was on HBO and every single member of my family had it on VHS or cassette, and it was in their car all the time or on at their house all the time. And just seeing like how intensely my entire family reacted to that special and identified with every single joke. But like, like you couldn't, you know, anytime one of my relatives would be like, would go to a restaurant and then ask for something that wasn't on the menu or some different thing, everyone would be like, that's like that Jackie Mason bit. Um, and so, you know, so that, and then growing up in San Francisco during the comedy boom, like when I was in high school um, and, you know, I, I started hanging out at comedy clubs in middle school because my middle school science teacher's roommate was the doorman at the club, the first, one of the first clubs that Kamau worked at. So my middle school science teacher, like comedy was, you know, at the time, San Francisco had this thing, Comedy Day in the Park, that drew 50,000 people to the park every year. There was a local stand-up showcase on local television. There was a local stand-up radio show on morning radio. And there were five full-time comedy clubs in the city. So there was just like a ton of stand-up around. And I was into it. And my science teacher was like, oh, I'll take you to the club. And so then I just started going to the club like every week. 
and I would go on Tuesday night because that's when the owner of the club wasn't there and the comedians would do weird shit. Um, <laughs> and so started hanging around watching and got to see like all of these, you know, people come up through the San Francisco, you know, club system um, and seeing like, you know, just seeing, seeing people. What really sort of connected for me was seeing people uh, sort of go from being like a strong comic to sort of who the person that, that we know them as today. You know what I mean? Like I got to, you know, watch Margaret Cho go, go from being an MC to a headliner and, you know, and seeing people like come into their voice as a comedian was really exciting to me. For both of you then, was this seen as a viable thing to do as a career? Because I think in the UK, that's one of the things, if you're a working class person, you're not really told that, that you're sort of told a little bit the arts aren't for you or this isn't a, a career option. Al Madrigal said that he had a career counsellor at school that just did comedy. There was a door marked comedy because <laughs> um, a comedian had gone to his school. And that just sort of blew my mind a bit that in America, people are like, oh, yeah, people have careers doing this. Did you feel that or was there any resistance to either of you entering it as a career from your family's perspective or anything else? I mean, I do think in America there is a uh, <laughs> a myth of our own exceptionalisms. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard about that, <laughs> uh, that we can do whatever we want to do. And so I think that, like, that exists throughout America, that you can sort of, like, certainly there are different families who preach different things, but I do think there is more access to dreaming in that sense because you're told you can, even though, as NATO said earlier, it's a lie. Most of us don't have access to do whatever we want to do. But so I think for me specifically, because my mom had sent me to really good schools, I kind of knew that I was not going to, that I was going to be able to, if this comedy thing didn't work out, I was going to be able to, I wasn't going to end up like in the gutter. Like I would be like, I'll figure something out. You know, I, I had this, I'll figure something out. On top of that, I think I also was very dilute, uh, diluted, is that the word? Yeah. About how easy it was going to be to be yes, a stand-up comedian. all of us. So I think... Yeah, so I think that I think it was like I knew I'd figure something out. Also, I was like, well, I'll start in three years. I'll probably move to LA, get one of those sitcom things. And uh, I mean, I was very serious about that. Like I was like, oh, you know, you move to LA, get a sitcom thing, do that. Then I'll be in the next Lethal Weapon movie and get a book deal. And you know, I'll be an international touring comedian. You know, so I think I was it. I think the thing that I learned over time is that. I really had to do it because comedy kept sort of giving me reasons to quit, and I really and I never quit. So I really I think at some point you become this is just who I am. It's some sort of calling, and I just have to I have to see it through. Yeah, I did. I think and if any of us knew how long it would take to get good and find our voices, I I wonder if like we'd actually do it. <laughs> like because I do think it's I think you seek because. You know, brilliant comics make it look so easy on stage. Everyone, like both of you do, you know, I hope I do, that people watch that and go, oh, well, that's easy because they appear to be just chatting and they're really mm -hmm. funny. But the skill it takes to get to that point and to have that moment, like you're saying, Nato, of where you see someone become the comic they're becoming, takes a lot of graft, a lot of hard work. Every single time before I perform, right before I walk out on stage, I say to myself or whoever's next to me, Maybe tonight is the night I quit comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every time. Yeah. yeah, I like the fact that we all we all know that if we wanted to, we could quit. But um, not that we could. But the, the option is there to stop because you just stop. But we never will. I mean, I think I I think I have quit actually. 
if I look at the number of hours I spent as a stand-up comic in the last three years, you know, uh, even before the pandemic, I was doing less and less stand-up comedy. Like, so I, every now and again, I go, "Am I the person who retired and no, didn't know it? Like, am I the last to know that I retired?" It's not the first. It's not the first time you retired, Kamal. I know, I know, but this time I was like, normally I, I knew I was retiring. I've seen you walk off stages you didn't like before. <laughs> oh yes, I was a famous walker offer. Yes, oh, I miss those days of just like in the middle of a set. I'm done here. <laughs> really? Were you were you that I only have one friend who I think was a walker offer in the UK. Comic called Benny Boot and he if he even if he was like storming, he would just have this moment where he in his head perceived that he was tanking and then he would just like self-implode and then leave. I've never seen anything like it. I was like, you're being so funny. I don't know what's happening. I was like that except for the if I was storming part. <laughs> if I was killing, I would stay. But if it was not going to my to my satisfaction, I'm America's Benny Boot, as they say. I, I've also seen Kamau like finish, like not, not walk off mid-set, but finish the set and like be home in bed before anyone has had a chance to say goodbye to him. <laughs> yes, <laughs> People yes, be like, yes. did he have a trap door or something? Where did he go? <laughs> yes, yes. Time to go. <laughs> I also, I mean, you know, I, uh, I at some point figured out that I feel like I've, you know, I have wondered whether the pandemic has told me that I've quit comedy um, <laughs> <laughs> against my will. Several years ago, this thing happened where I like, I wasn't on stage for several weeks, and then I was at, at visiting uh, with family in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, outside of Boston, and I like felt like I was losing my mind, and I was like, I, I just, I have to find a microphone, and and I like <laughs> went went online and found like a best of Boston showcase in the basement of a DoubleTree hotel in Hyannis, Ooh. Massachusetts. <laughs> that Ooh. already in the basement of a hotel is always. And I drove forty five minutes. And like talk Oof. to the producer, and he was like, "I don't usually like liberals, but you seem okay." Um, uh. And and then you know you could do eight minutes, and then I went up and did eight minutes, and 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 I did did the job, and it was fine, and it felt so good, and I I feel like I just made peace with the fact that like I'm going to be a person who does this thing, whether or not I end up making a living at it, and. Uh, I'm a guy who talks to the microphone and am also have a rewarding career as a union organizer um, and make some, you know, a, I wage class struggle. So, <laughs> that, and I enjoy that. Um, it became clear to me that show business was not looking for a, you know, the the people who write checks in Hollywood don't think that the next comedian they need to get behind is like a mid-40s left-wing Jewish intellectual dad from San Francisco they're wrong, uh, NATO. <laughs> you know who, who, as Kamau is saying, isn't that flexible and isn't willing to play the game. It isn't going to hang out, and you know nobody's like you know. If he need... does hang out, he's going to say something that they're not going to like. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I applied for something, and there was a question about like you know how do you promote diversity, you know, in your work, and I was like, well, I'm committed to toppling all forms of domination. And they were like, that's, that's not what we meant. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just think that there's, it's like, I, I'm going to be outside of that, outside of that, that world and look for ways to be creatively satisfied. What made you decide to come together and go, we're going to take a political show on the road and we're going to film it? Lack of job opportunities, I think, was a big part of it. <laughs> like, like realizing that what, there wasn't a home for what we did, so it's like you have to build it yourself. I think that we, I remember we were in the 
like a it was a like a nightclub that had a that had, used to do nights of comedy occasionally, and it was a room I hated doing. <laughs> and, and one night we were in there, and we sort of hatched out what we sh- what what we would do if we could do the show ourselves, if we could if we had our own show. Because I'm a big believer that you need to like, as you say in the UK, like do what it says on the tin. So if you name it something that is what it is, then the people who come through know what it is, and if they don't, it's on them. So we, I think we, when we came with the name Laughter Against the Machine, I was like, there's no way you don't get that. And if you don't get it, then it's on you. you know. So I think, obviously, an allusion to the, to the rock band Rage Against the Machine yes. that we're both fans of. And so it just felt like if we say that, then you get that the political comedy is going to be a little more uh, pointed than what you would expect from somebody who's like, what are these idiots in Congress doing? <laughs> so I think that was the... The idea of like, and then I think when we started doing it, the shows were fun. We did get an audience who wasn't a comedy club audience generally. There were people who were like, I like this idea of this and I will come see you guys. And we weren't doing it in comedy clubs mostly. And then we decided to, this is the early days of um, of Kickstarter. So it was just a thing that everybody was doing. So let's go around the country and film it and turn it into a documentary. And 14 years later, <laughs> you can watch it for, for free in pieces on, on, on Means TV. <laughs> when Bush was president, there was this like boom in political comedy shows, like like a bunch of people, you know, it, kids. There was a simpler time when people thought that George W. Bush was the worst president ever <laughs> that America could have. Before he was allowed to like come out of Texas and walk around like, yeah, I'm not the, I'm not so bad anymore, right, guys? I'm a painter now, and so there were all these people doing these like liberal comedy tours, progressive comedy tours, kind of stuff during the Bush years, and then. And then when Obama got elected, everyone was like, okay, we're done. And Kamau and I weren't done. And so we started doing these shows in the Bay Area and then going to other places that were like where we thought people would be into us. Like we went to Seattle and had a good time. And then there was a, a congresswoman named Gabby Giffords there was a, who got shot in Arizona. There was a, like this hate crime right. shooting. And we had this conversation of like, man, it, there's got to be some cool people. Arizona, like, you know, it's like she gets shot. Sheriff Joe or Arpaio is doing these like horrible, you know, like war crimes, like human rights abuses in the in the in the county jail there. You know, they're passing laws to criminalize uh, immigrants. And we're like, Arizona seems like it sucks. There's got to be some cool people there who could use a laugh. And then we're like, well, let's go figure out how to bring laughs to them and then booked a tour on that basis without realizing that we at that point had no following in those places <laughs> <laughs> and no one knew who we were and we had to figure out how to get people to come to the shows but it was a good idea anyway <laughs> so how did you do that did you just go out and meet people at marches and you know um yes <laughs> I mean, yes, yes, we did that. And it was the early days of the internet being a place where you could sort of, uh, you know, we're t- talking about like, you know, the early days of like, you know, Facebook and all those things. So we were we were definitely using that and also connecting with people. A lot of it happened to connecting through organizations on the ground. They're going, hey, invite your people at, from your organization to our show. I know you don't think you like stand up comedy, but <laughs> and you have and you have a lot of good evidence that says you don't like stand up comedy. But invite your people to our show, and then sort of trying to spread the word that way. And then we and I guess, and as it, and as it shows in the series, and then we also it happened at the same time that Occupy Wall Street took off. So then there was a suddenly there was just more talk in general about inequality. And the first time that the news said things like economic inequality and wealth disparity, and so we sort of were happening at the right time where people were out looking for things to sort of like do to support this thing that they were not learning about. 
And this is during the Obama administration, right? I know, yeah. yeah. So it kind of seems wild now when we know how bad it can get, like you were saying, NATO. We're still finding out how bad it can get. We're still it, investigating here if we can make how bad it can get. We, we haven't hit bottom. No. <laughs> My rule of thumb is, like, one of the key principles for me is that you need to hang out with people from El Salvador. Because, like, like you know, when, when people in the United States are like, oh, this is, you know, Trump is fascist, the right wing is fascist, things are about to get dangerous. People in El Salvador have, you know, fought death squads for 100 years. So... Generally, like, you know, I just I just check in with my Salvadoran friends like it's not you don't need to worry until the Salvadorans get worried. (laughs) (laughs) Do you now plan to, like, come back together and do this again? Do you feel like with this time, 14 years on, like you were saying, do you feel like you could do this tour again now? What do you think of the political landscape now? Do you feel you could do it? Do you feel it's important? Because I think right now, not preaching to the choir is such a huge thing and trying to, I guess you call it reaching across the aisle, don't you, in America, or like trying to appeal to people who might be wavering on certain issues, not just necessarily the people that you would... I think now would be a brilliant time. Is that something you would consider or do? Or I mean, first of all, I have to wait till my COVID vaccine fully kicks in before I start going to small dark rooms with strangers. <laughs> I think that's a. I mean, I think that's a that's a thing that I, as I see comedians going on the road now or as comedy shows opening back up, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not there yet. So I think that we are always having these conversations in the work that we do. I think if we if we were to do it again, it'd be because we wanted to do it. I think the marketplace has really shifted. You know, Trevor Noah is the host of The Daily Show now in America. John, yeah. it, back when John Stewart was the host, he was basically the only person doing that work. And now we have now literally that work is being done, as we said earlier, on TikTok. There are people who are like you'll see a 30 second video of like, let me explain to you why this thing is wrong. You know, so I think that there's a lot more critique out there, which is great. And I think the work that I certainly I'll speak for myself, this, I'm doing that laughter against machine work, you know, in lots of in other spaces. You know, CNN is not preaching to the converted as much as people think CNN is a liberal network. So I feel like I'm like, like with that, with my show United Shades of America, every season I'm like pulling that audience further and further to the left. So uh, yeah, but I think that you know it's anything could happen. But I don't think we're hatching unless NATO tells me we're hatching our plans. I don't think we're hatching our plans. I don't think of the project as 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 reaching across the aisle. Like the people on the other side of the aisle are not what I'm concerned about. The people that I'm concerned about are the people that, that Kamau was talking about earlier, the people who were like, why are you being so hard on Biden already? The mm. people who were like, you know, uh, the people who were mad about Trump putting kids in cages, but are less mad about Biden putting kids in cages. Right. Or the people who are, you know, even though, you know, we've been accused of preaching to the converted, the project is always to challenge. And it's like anybody can make fun of the other guy. And because, you know, I think, a core value for me in my comedy, and I think Kamau shares this, is like, if you look at the world, none of us are innocent. Yeah. None of us are off the hook. We're And so because we're all responsible, it's our job to implicate ourselves in our comedy. And it's the easiest thing in the world to go on stage and be like, look at those idiots over there. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, if they're that dumb, why are they ruining the world? Like, and we're so smart. And so, you know, and so, the, so sometimes the fissures come in ways that are unexpected, like, in San Francisco, because of the inequality in San Francisco, you know, I've done a lot of material about, you know, the destruction that the tech industry and tech money has delivered on this city. And then I have tech people coming up to me after the show, like having a, you know, private moral reckoning with themselves. They're liberals, they're Democrats, they're pro, you know, they 
might have even voted for Bernie Sanders, but then they're like wrestling with their own, you know, uh, complicity in the system. Um, you know, we once, you know, we did a show and it was during one of the many times that Israel was like bulldozing people's houses in the West Bank. And I did jokes about that. And I could feel like a whole section of the room being about to walk out. You know, again, they're all liberals. They're all Democrats. But, you right. know, some sometimes everybody has a line where and, you know, it's our job to figure out where that, you know, what those what those tender uh, spots are and prod them. And it might be at that same show where I where the thing that got the audience the audience the maddest at me is when I made fun of Tyler Perry. I was I was about to bring that up. <laughs> and I was like, all the things that have been said on the stage tonight, and this guy heckled me because he didn't like the fact that I was talking shit about Tyler Perry. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by what people's sacred cows are. You know, like mm-hmm. I've talked about abortion on stage and gun control and uh, one night at a club I did jokes about the royal family about the queen and a woman got up and walked out and I was like wow like mm. to be that sensitive or that defensive of an incredibly rich family who you're told are better than you uh by birth <laughs> like I, I I find insane but I, I I agree with with you in terms of like self-examination I think that's a huge part of what helps going forward because I think we're in a culture now where uh, we all want to be on the right side of the, of history is how I describe it. we want to be on the right side of history but throwing pe- other people under the bus doesn't mean you automatically get to get on it so like if you can check your own shit or within your own kind of thing like before you point over there and go look how they're getting it wrong that that we maybe come to ourselves first and look at like how we process and deal and view things that then that should should always be the place we start because I do think there's a danger with political comedy that people feel like they're being told off and people don't want to feel like even obviously no one here is sort of guilty of this I hope that I'm not I might have sometimes when I haven't felt the way to make it funny enough, but I don't want to feel like I'm telling someone off because I feel that people sort of shut down when mm-hmm. they're being told that they're that they're wrong. Yeah, there's a thing we that uh, we just I, on my podcast we had uh, Adrian Marie Brown on, and the idea, and she spoke to this, and other people spoke to this the idea of calling in versus calling out. Like you know, you're calling if you're calling somebody out, it's really about your own performative. Like you're wrong, and I know you're wrong, and I'm better than you because I can say that you're wrong, as opposed to going, hey, I don't think that's correct. Come here, let me talk to you about it. And I think that. For the most part, you know, I feel like this. Like, if I want, I it's sort of like I, I'm pretty clear about who I want on my side and who I feel like is lost. And I can, I will call out the people who I feel like are lost when I want to call them out. I, you know, I'll go on a Dr. Drew rant <laughs> with, with the best of them and feel like I don't, I don't have any need for you anymore. But if it's somebody who I feel like is like you're just headed in the wrong, I think you you could be headed in a better direction than than the approach is different. So, and I think the one thing we just learned this is the frustrating part about Biden. The only reason we got Trump out of office is because a bunch of people came together who were like, Biden's not my guy, but Trump's really not my guy. So I'm going to do a lot of work to get Biden in based on the idea that once he gets in, he's going to understand that I did this work. And by I, I'm referring to black women. <laughs> and now those black women were like, I have the receipts of the work I did, uh, President Biden. Can can we get him to look at those receipts? So I think that like that's what... It's very clear that like a lot of people decided to instead of calling out, they called in a bunch of people. Go, okay, we need to do this right now because it's for the greater good. But now, do we get do we get what we need now that we've done that? Is the question right? That's a really lovely way of 
describing it, calling in rather than calling out. You know, sometimes comics will, you know, when comics want to complain about political correctness or comics want to com- say that, like, you know, left wing audiences can't take a joke or feminist audience can't take a joke. And I, and I always feel like, I don't know, I mean, lots of people can't take a joke if if you make fun of the shit that they care about in a lame way. Like, you know, sports fans can't take a joke either if you make fun of their team. So, you know, I think what people are willing to let you make fun of their stuff if they can, you know, it's the same. I mean, it's it, in that way, like the politics are similar to, you know, to a lot of the other stuff around identity. Like I can make fun of Jews in a way that, you know, Kamau's not going to make fun of Jews um, <laughs> publicly. Uh, yes. so, <laughs> so, you know, but if you can demonstrate to people in how you present your material that you're making fun of it as a participant and a member of the group and like we can laugh at ourselves, can't we? As opposed to someone who's an outsider who just who doesn't care and is ridiculing them in a superficial way. I think people are ready to are ready to hear it and ready to laugh at themselves. Well, that's self-deprecating as well, because you are in intrinsically then part of the joke as well. It's the difference between um, me making a joke about my boobs on stage, <laughs> um, which I've only done recently because it was such a huge thing. And, you know, like, but me making jokes about them and talking about getting athletes foot tit versus someone br- bringing me on stage and kind of going, this next act has a massive rack, which has happened before, like... Like, like, you know, I've been introduced. Of course it has. I don't know why I'm, I know why I'm, I'm feigning surprise. Of course it has. Oh, my God. I can't imagine. Yeah, of course it has. Um, and people not understanding that objectifying is different to owning jokes about yourself and your own experience and stuff. So, yeah, so I completely, I can, I, that kind of lands with me in a very, <laughs> in a very specific way. Uh, years ago when I was still, uh, before I got uh, richer than NATO, um, I was opening for a comedian and uh, who's now a very famous comedian, and so he'll remain he'll remain nameless just because I don't feel the need to name him. But and I had a joke where I would where I used the I use the n word. You know, it's part of the joke. Was part of the and then and then, <laughs> then this guy, white guy from the south, uh, oh, no. got on stage and said, "Give it up for Kamal. He's one funny nigger." And the audience went, "What? Nope." Uh, not, like, <laughs> yes it's not okay for you to say oh my god yeah i knew that's where you were going yeah, but yeah, still, yeah. it made me feel so tense yeah 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 and i mean and i remember i was like not even fully off the like i was off stage but like the lights were still sort of on me so it was and i really turned around and i turned around like is that what, is that what we're doing and again this i feel like sometimes comics do that to each other but the audience doesn't know they're in on the joke and i was like dude i haven't even had a conversation with you yet Yes. Yeah. If if you'd have been backstage going, would it be funny if I and you'd have mm-hmm. been like, no, it won't be. No, <laughs> and no, you, no. you could have you could have cleared that up straight away. And here's the thing. I like that you said that you didn't want to name the person because this happened with the boob thing with me. I think I posted it was a couple of years ago and I posted about it on social media and people were like name, name and shame, name. And I was like, I don't want to because I believe in people making mistakes and being able to apologize for those mistakes but I just wanted to let you know I wanted to to use it as an example so that other male comics could see it and go this isn't cool it's not the first time it's happened and the person who did it apologized um afterwards and you know we sort of moved on from there but like also I can choose to talk about it in whatever way I want to talk about it I don't like this pressure or this idea 
that we have to instantly just go, this is who it is. And, you know, then it makes it this like kind of huge thing where they're on either side. And then you've got people steaming in to defend this guy. Yeah. That's one reason not to name it. Because I don't want to spend my next week talking about this and have like, and this become, I don't want to spend the next week where this becomes my, uh, my part-time job is dealing with having to deal with people who have feelings about who I named. And also that thing that happened to you he ain't the first person to do that or something like that. It's about the structure. I think right now in America, we're trying to really get people focused on talking about the structures of white supremacy, not just the, the Ku Klux Klan and the neo-Nazis. And that's about the structure of misogyny. Like it's not, so he wasn't like he stepped out of some box and goes, I just came up with an idea. What if I'm shitty to a woman on stage? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's the thing that is happening and you're giving an example of it, but to name him is to act like he's the only one who ever did it. Exactly. And put the weight of, yes, put the weight of all the people who've done it. And there's been people who've done it worse. Yes. You know, and I haven't, I haven't named them. And also, I, you know, like it's someone that I sort of like. So I was able to kind of take them aside and go, hey, <laughs> you know, and also sometimes on stage, people say stuff. It's a live situation. I'm sort of forgiving of if they were a repeat offender, that's a different thing. But I think sometimes people do things that seems like a great idea at the time. And I think I was maybe hosting the night because I think it was at my gig, which was also why it was a bigger thing, because I'd invited some younger female comics to come into the room. And I've had rooms that are always just, you know, this room is a great room. People want to play it. People want to come into this room. And you know, this is a young girl who's entering into the business and I don't want it to be for her like it was for me hmm. when I came in. I want her to see that it's, there are more women in power and we've risen up and we're there and you can see us. And these aren't like going into a room 10 years ago where you're going to have someone kind of bring you on as a female impersonator, quote, end quote, which, you know, is not an insult to me, but obviously the person doing it thought it was, you know. Uh. So I didn't want her to think, God, this is what it's like. Yeah. So, so that I was like, this is the moment to challenge. It's in my room. I'm hosting. I could come back up and challenge it on stage afterwards. And with comedy, it's like, as we have grown as comedians, like, you know, I don't know about you, Tiff. I, I know that me and Kamau have said things in the past on stage that we today do not stand yes. behind yeah. and are ashamed of. Yes. Because we were younger. We were inexperienced. We were scared. We didn't know what the f*** we were doing. I have tape of some of it. Yeah. Uh, I will I will hold it over Kamau forever. Um, but so it's like you don't want to say you're not accountable for it, but you want to recognize that it's a, it's it's a process of growth and that people need to learn and go through it and you need to based on the relationship. You know, one time Kamau and I were at a comedy festival and there was a white comic, super funny guy and had like a pretty, you know, uh, a, a a a huge bit, mostly white audience that relied heavily on saying the N-word a lot. And like it killed, but some of us pulled his sleeve after the show. (laughs) (laughs) We surrounded him. (laughs) It was was an intellectual uh, bullying. (laughs) You know, and had a little intervention and just had the conversation of like, look, here's why, you know, and we're still friends with, you know, I... You know, I'm still on good terms with that person. I don't, yeah, you know, me too, me too. And think he's, think that they're, he's a great comic and that he was figuring something out in his development and, you know, try, was trying this thing out. And it's not like he was going going to be the, you know, branded as the, like, you know, that was his his career plan. Was, he wasn't making bumper stickers and t-shirts for it. Right. He, it was <laughs> right. just a thing that he was working on at the time. And, and then he got through it and, you know, and, and, and we all, you know, and, and, and grew as a result of it. 
So I think the thing about that too is that, and this is after you've been doing comedy for a while, you and I, you you know you talk about the and I've heard you talk about this the phases of of a comedian's life. I listened to the podcast you did with our friend Harry Kondabolu, and the idea that like. At some point, comedians go, oh, I'm going to be edgy. And they don't realize, do you understand that Lenny Bruce already did that and got arrested for it? So you can't be edgy <laughs> enough that that's not that's dropping me. And that's what I remember at the time being like, yeah, Lenny Bruce already did that. He already did the I'm going to say the word. And he wrote it and it was a better written joke because he's Lenny Bruce. So, like, you know, you can't, you know, so I think you letting people know that, like, you think you're doing something new, but you're not actually you're just sort of walking in giant footsteps that you, that we don't really deserve to walk in. Yeah, and it's a process of learning. There's definitely stuff where I'm like, yeah, that wouldn't really, yeah. I feel like that was, even the other week, I'm doing a work in progress and I wrote a joke about, I mean, even if I do it here, I don't know if it'd be like, it's not the worst joke in the world. I said something about this, like, um, I wish that they would stop calling Trump the Trump impeachment trial a stain on democracy because Monica Lewinsky's dress called and said it wants its thing back. Yeah. But um, like, <laughs> which I think is quite a funny joke. But then, you know, my other half pointed out to me, he was like, listen, you know, for the amount of shit Monica Lewinsky got, and I, I follow her on Twitter and I met her once at a party and I was like, would she think that that was like on her? Because I wouldn't want to slut shame. I mean, I feel like in many ways we've moved on a lot because she took so much of the blame for that when she wasn't the one who was in the relationship, you know, and that's a generational thing and the power dynamics and everything that was in that. But Paul was like, well, you need to work on it and make it a bit clearer. And, you know, so that's a constant, I feel like a constant like work in progress that that we should all be work in progress, right? Comedy is, and the only way to really find out is do it in front of an audience. That's the scary thing about this particular era because, and I mean, is because, you have to sort of figure out where your own line is and where the audience line is. And some of that is from like, whoa, that joke was awful. I won't do that again. And unfortunately, we have an era where if, if the wrong person writes that joke down and takes it to the internet or takes cell phone footage of it, then you become labeled as like, I thought she was a feminist. You know what I mean? And yeah. I think that's the, the scary part right now is that I do think we have to leave room for comics to go too far while they're figuring out where the, where the joke is and where the line is. you got to walk over the line to know where the line is. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, when, when, I mean, on just on the conversation about comics trying to be edgy, it's like literally this year, there are comics in India getting arrested because their act, the government believes their act is indecent. So, like, none of us have ever risked arrest for our jokes. So, <laughs> however edgy we might think we are, like, it's not, you know, in Iraq, there was a guy who was like tagged as the Iraqi John Stewart who was murdered. But, you know, like, wow. none of us are risking that much. Right. Yeah. 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 We're tiptoeing around some stuff where we're like, might not do that again. Yeah. As opposed to, oh, no, we've been put in prison for this. Yeah. Boo hoo. Someone was mean on me on Twitter. Like, you know, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Your own tiny revolutions is my final question to wrap this up. So, um, anything that you found has been revolutionary in terms of breaking through with your work or your life even, you know, whether that be meditation or getting up in the morning and doing a certain thing for an hour. So I just, what your individual tiny revolutions are. Uh, this is going to sound like the thing that a person would say who had kids, but I'm going to say it cause this is the, like, like at the, at the truly at the end of the day, 
knowing that my kids are are uh, aware of the world and and can have especially my six my nine year old the two and a half year old not so much but like she's so dumb <laughs> she, she's just the pandemic has made her feral it's not her fault she's just she's a wolf child now but like knowing that my kids for example know who george floyd is know what black lives matter is can specifically articulate why we don't like donald trump uh in a way that i, I couldn't articulate about ronald reagan at the same point like i was like i just think we don't like him we're just not with that dude knowing that my kids understand Get it, seeing my kids get excited about representation. My six-year-old is right now reading a book about Mae Jemison, the uh, ash black, the first black woman to go in space. First, I say first black woman astronaut. We didn't just put a black woman in space. She was an astronaut. <laughs> she trained. But knowing that my kids have a real, like, solid awareness of the world and their identities in the world is a, is super important to me in a way that like feels like I'm preparing them for the future. That. I'm prepared. They're they're going to be more prepared for the future. So that's the thing. That's that's my tiny revolution. The rest of it is like, I'm glad that it happens. It feels good that it happens. But that, but it all sort of points towards that. Oh, that's great. That's a great answer. Thank you, NATO. Yeah, I mean, I, I um, similarly. So w- one of my kids is a couple of years ago started identifying as non-binary, and they're 12, and they're like in a whole different intellectual conversation about gender than anything that I understood. Like they're there are things that are obvious to them that are like, you know, I mean, I, I, I did a joke about this in my standup, but things that like were, you know, that, that are that are like so obvious to them that would have taken our generation, you know, four years at university, like in a women's right. studies major to like get our heads <laughs> around. Um, and so listening to my kid make their way in the world and advocate for themselves and reckon with their own identity and talk about what they need. Um, and organize the rest of us uh, to um, to af- you know affirm them and and their and their humanity and to grow in the ways that we need to grow and like you know in terms of you know and sending sending assigning reading to their grandparents and all that kind of stuff is just is is really amazing. So they've been revolutionary to you, yes. both of you, your kids. That's lovely. I really like that answer. Thank you so much for coming on Tiny Revolutions. Um, if Do you have anything that you would like to plug? So season six of my, well, I don't know if, this, I don't know how, I don't know if it works in the UK, but my CNN show United Shades of America is coming back. Uh, uh, get, a, get a VPN that you can get it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sneakily watch it. Get to, get to see it, no matter how you do it. Yeah. We don't endorse it, but we are, we endorse the show. How you get to it, nothing to do with us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Plausible deniability. Yeah. What about you, NATO? I'm at NATO Green on Twitter, Mr. NATO Green on Instagram. If you want some jokes and some incredibly detailed discussions of public policy and politics, <laughs> and uh, and I have a couple albums out. Uh, if you want to support the arts, the best way to get the albums is Bandcamp. Uh, otherwise, do whatever you have to do. <laughs> Thank you, W. Camel Bell and NATO Green for giving us your tiny revolutions and coming on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you. You can listen to other programmes from The Bugle, including The Bugle, The Last Post, Tiny Revolutions and The Gargle, wherever you find your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.